Hello and welcome to Two Beers with Steve. I am your host, Steve Patterson, and today my special guest is Stefan Molyneux. How you doing, Stefan? I'm just great, Steve. How are you doing? And a very happy new year to you. It's uh, great to talk to you again. Thank you. I think this is the first show that we've uh, we've done in the year 20,011. It um, certainly is. So uh, anyway, uh, you've been a guest on our show before, so some people already know who you are. Uh, I listen to your podcast quite a bit, uh, so I know quite a bit about you. But um, for those that don't know you, just give us a, a quick synopsis of uh, Stefan Molyneux. Well, uh Six foot, uh, 190 <laughs> pounds of rippling philosophical muscle. Uh, anything else that you'd like to know? Uh, I, I basically, uh, I, uh, I, I sprint I, I not thought only... and sweat. Uh, I, I sprint thought and sweat <laughs> ideas, and uh, I am in the decathlon of uh, brain grindy thinking. That is my profession. I'm a philosopher. I run the largest and most popular philosophy show in the world, Free Domain Radio, which people can find at freedomainradio.com. It's commercial free. It is uh, all free. The books are all free uh, that I've written. I've written a book on comparing agnosticism to atheism called Against the Gods with a question mark, which uh, is proving to be quite popular. It's a short overview of some of the arguments against uh, agnosticism, which I've uh, just completed, and that's available at freedomainradio.com forward slash free, as is a book of mine on ethics and uh, the philosophy of relationships and uh, books on uh, stateless societies and all other kinds of goodies. So invite people, one and all, to come pillage my server for all mm -hmm. that it's worth, and uh, I hope that people will check it out. Well, you certainly are the content king. Uh, you can... <laughs> dominate uh, people's days and weeks on to end with just your content alone. Well, I think the, you know, the, the key thing for me is that if I produce enough unindexed material, then it's functionally pro impossible to disprove me because uh, I can just say, look, in some podcast, I, I proved you wrong. You'll just have to go off and find it. And with 2,000 or so podcasts, it's, um, it's impossible, and I feel that that is a, an intellectual triumph of the most weaselly and cowardly kind, but, uh, but I'll take it, is really what I'm saying. Okay. Uh, the reason I'm talking with you today is because uh, you know, I've been listening to your podcast. Um, you've more or less uh, sort of gone parabolic in my mind. Um, you really are starting to you know, catch fire with other news uh, sources, and what I mean by that is uh, Alex Jones mainly. Um, he's got a, like a, a band of maybe 300,000 daily listeners. So how has that affected um, uh, you know, the, the free domain radio? Well, I mean, uh, let's not uh, kid ourselves. Uh, Alex is uh, is a pretty uh, potent bump to right. anybody's listenership, yeah. and uh, I've been getting very positive responses to what I've been doing with Alex, and um, uh, I, I've really enjoyed our conversations. I mean, uh, I do have to drink about 12 espressos before <laughs> I sit down with him and have a catheter uh, just so that I can keep up because, you know, the man is not short of energy. and. Right. Uh, uh, so I, I just assume that he sleeps when he's not on the show. He wakes up, you know, he gets a full-on injection of uh, caffeine to the frontal lobes, does the show, and then is sealed back in a hyperbaric chamber. That's my theory. Uh, and uh, I've really enjoyed our conversations. He is a uh, fairly generous host. He is uh, obviously well-informed about some stuff. Uh, I'm sure we have our disagreements, but that's true of just about anybody, even me. From one day to the next, I can disagree with myself. So I've, uh, I've really appreciated being on the show, and uh, I hope to do it again. Well, that's the thing about Alex Jones is that uh, you know I've had my disagreements with Alex Jones too, but I owe um, a, 
a great service to Alex Jones for for bringing a lot of people um, to to become part of my audience. You know, I mean, he turns a lot of people on. He's got such a large audience, and then sets them in motion. So, I mean, all of us guys who criticize uh, Alex Jones for just one little thing he says out of the you know the the fifteen hours or twenty hours of content that he puts out a week, um, you know, for my hats off to the guy. I really um, I really like Alex Jones for that reason. And I've, uh, I mean, I've just between you and I, and I guess whoever ends up listening, uh, right. I've, I've mellowed out my um, isolationism a little bit over the past few years for mm -hmm. a variety of reasons, which we don't have to get into here. And I'm a little bit more sort of hands across the water now than I used to be. And um, uh, so that's just something that I've, uh, I've sort of grown into. And uh, I think it's the right decision. Uh, I found that the the pure life of uh, non-cooperation with those I have disagreements with uh, mm -hmm. just ended up not being particularly productive. And so I've sort of altered my stance uh, on that. And I'm certainly willing to uh, extend what I think are the benefits of philosophy to Alex Jones's listeners. I mean, fundamentally, he and I are having a conversation, but the, the purpose of it, as is the purpose of you and I, is to talk to each other's listeners. And so I don't think that disagreements that I may have with the host right. should hold back the benefits of philosophy from his listeners, and that's really been the approach that I've been taking. Well, your message gets across. Um, and one of the questions that he asked, and I'm going to ask the same question because I think it's a great setup for a show, is, you know, uh, let's do a, like a, a setup of your worldview, the, the big picture, uh, what's going on, and then we'll work our way down to maybe the, you know, the micro level uh, to what it means to us. So what is your overarching um, theory of, of maybe statism or the worldview in general? Well, I think that the fundamental thing that if people aren't talking about this, then they have no credibility with me. If they're not talking about the fact that the existing system is dead and buried, then they're just talking out of their ass and they have zero interest to me. So there's, of course, a huge number of people in the mainstream media who are using all of these kinds of euphemisms and covering up all of the reality of the situation and of the system. So, like, for instance, you, you hear, and I, I don't mean to pick on Tom. Uh, on, on, well, so I won't I won't even pick on individual names. It doesn't really matter. But you hear lots of talk about this stimulus package, right? Like, like it's a stimulus package. And really, uh, who can argue with, with stimulus? I mean, if you're that much against stimulus, you probably should be firebombing Starbucks or whatever, right? But stimulus is not even a remotely accurate term for what is going on in the, uh, in the economic world. Uh, it is, um, first of all, it's, it's money printing. Right? It's just a creation of, of counterfeit. All, all fiat currency is counterfeit fundamentally, but this is counterfeit on steroids. So it's it's not stimulus spending because the government has no money. Uh, I mean, the, the government doesn't even have money relative to its own budget, right? So, I mean, the government never has any money. It just takes from the citizens. But even relative to it taking from the citizens, it's way out of cash. So when people are talking about the stimulus package, what they're talking about is is two things, printing money and going into debt. Now, everybody recognizes that it was debt that caused the financial crisis, whether you think it's private debt in the form of mortgage payments uh, or public debt in the form of government budgets. It is debt that caused the uh, financial crisis. And really, the underlying cause, of course, is just control of interest rates and fiat currency, which sends all kinds of wrong messages to the free market or the vestiges of the free market. And so if people call things by their proper names, solutions are very easy. And the ridiculousness and self-destruction of the existing system becomes very clear. So if you say we need to take on more debt to solve the economic crisis caused by debt, everybody recognizes that you're insane. Right. Right. Yep. I mean, 
but but you have so you have to call it something else other than debt or printing money or if you say we need to print money in order to deal with the problems of uh, high prices in the housing market everybody knows who's got any brains that printing money simply causes inflation so you have to invent another term and so i think anybody who's not talking about the reality that the system is dead the government has less than no money that printing money and and creating more debt is not going to solve the problem just as we all understand i mean if i'm in debt up to my eyeballs my solution isn't to go into more debt i mean <laughs> i can say that i'm going to do it but everybody right. understands that that's a ridiculous thing to do it's, it's amazing so, how powerful the words are to the narrative uh you know if if things get explained that way the narrative breaks down as to what they're doing but they're using words um that are disguised for to make their narrative clear well, yeah, to make the narrative clearer and the reality more obscure. I mean, right. I'm working on a sort of theory, which I'll just touch on briefly here. I, I don't okay. came, claim to have it all fleshed out. But I think there's a reason why psychological, psychologically powerful terms are used in economics, right? So it's considered to be a depression, right? I mean, it's a kind of the Great Recession. People don't like using the D word, but everyone understands now that when you've got upwards of 16 to 20% of people out of work, it's a depression. I mean, who's kidding who, right? The only reason it's not completely collapsed is because of all of this money printing, which is going to make the problems worse down the road. And so when you think about it, most people have an emotional understanding of economics that's sort of equivalent to a five-year-old's understanding of the family finances. So when you're a kid, your dad just kind of has money. I mean, you don't really understand it. I'm trying mm -hmm. to explain to my daughter, you know, we have to give people coins to buy things so that we can take them out of the store but man she doesn't really know what the heck's going on right she's just like well half the time you use plastic what is right don't mind so people when you're a sort of four or five year old kid your dad just kind of has money and he spends it and this is of course what people think of the government the government's like this dad who kind of has money and just spends it and nobody really gets where the money comes from uh, i mean they do if you sort of ask them but emotionally there's this block and Right. A lot of times when people are, are psychologically depressed, like they feel down, they feel very sad, they feel empty, a lot of people solve that problem by spending money. And this is true of, of households as well, right? So if, if everybody's down, people are like, let's go out for dinner. You know, let's go to the mall and buy some stuff. And, and a lot of people feel better. And so I think when you talk about a depression, people, I think at some level in their minds, associate that with families being unhappy. And of course, a lot of families in the US are unhappy for a damn good reason. And so when you say we're going to solve the depression by spending money, by stimulating things with money, I think people get that not at a rational level but at an emotional level as a kind of parallel to what goes on in their families. And I think that's one of the reasons why people don't call other people on this crap that they're spouting about stimulus and don't say, well, what the hell are you calling it a stimulus for? Do you have the money to pay for it? No. Then you're going in debt or you're printing money. There's no two ways about it. So stop calling it stimulus and start calling it by its proper name. But people have a barrier to doing that. And the only reason I can think of is either people are completely retarded, which I don't believe, or there's some emotional level at which people kind of accept this narrative. And I think that's got something to do with it, though I'm not saying that entirely proves the case. Um, when it comes to like the government having having to step in and spend money, um, are you familiar at all with like the exponential function of money? Are you, I mean, I don't know how much you've delved into this sort of thing. Uh, the stuff that like uh, you know, money is debt. There was those films that came out, uh, Promises Unleashed. I think that was money yeah. is debt part. Yeah, two. I'm I'm fairly aware of it. Yeah, but yeah. So go ahead. 
So basically what, what happens is that, you know, we've, we've gotten to this sort of like uh, phase where we've gone exponential, you know, where um, if, if people aren't spending it, then the government has to come in and spend it to, to sort of keep this jig up uh, going on exponentially. Um, eventually someday, I mean, there's, you know, the, the curve goes flat and uh, we have to double the amount of that we're spending every day. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with that sort of thing theory yeah at all. it's yeah it's 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 the the criticisms that people have around fractional reserve banking is this this right. is what you're talking about right and i i actually i have i have strong disagreements with that okay as a whole yeah let me know um well people will always try and find some way of avoiding the problem of violence in society and i think that's really tragic that is a real problem the problem is not fractional reserve banking uh, the problem is the coercive monopoly, the violence that the government has about uh, with regards to, to the currency. And people will always try and pin it on some institution. Like The problem is not the Federal Reserve. Uh, the problem is not fractional reserve uh, currency. The problem is not even uh, debt. Uh, the problem is that the government has a violent control and monopoly over the financial lifeblood of the system. The problem is that we have a bunch of sociopaths with the ability and legal right to counterfeit at will, to type whatever they want into their bank accounts. There's nothing wrong at all with fractional reserve banking. Fractional reserve banking is simply a form of gambling, and gambling is not wrong. So if, like to say, completely free society, you can put your money into a bank that does not practice fractional reserve lending. In other words, they don't lend out multiples of whatever is in their vault to uh, entrepreneurs in the hopes of getting a return on investment. They, they won't do that. And all that means is that you won't earn any interest on your money. So it's just like a safety deposit box. You put a piece of gold in a safety bo deposit box, you come back in 10 years, there's your piece of gold. It hasn't multiplied, it hasn't split, it hasn't been invested in stocks. But in a free society, you can take the choice to gamble with your money. In other words, you can say to the bank, listen, you can lend out double what my money is worth uh, to entrepreneurs. And then I'm either going to come back and there's going to be a lot more money or there's going to be a lot less money or somewhere in between. And so fractional reserve banking is just a way for people who want to get some sort of interest paid out to their deposits to permit the bank to lend out a multiple of what's in the vault. Uh, and that's perfectly fine. There's no force being used there. Uh, there's no fraud as long as you're aware and uh, the bank is upfront with what it's doing. There's no force. There's no fraud. And people always try to sidestep the reality of the violence at the heart of the system and look for some effect of that violence and say, that's the problem. Like the problem is fractional reserve banking. It's not. I mean, the, the problem is that this is possible only, this level of fractional reserve banking is possible only with the violent monopoly of the state and for no other reason. And so you keep having, it's like, like you're trying to find the source of a pollution in your river. You have to keep going, keep swimming upstream and upstream and upstream until you find whatever crap is being pumped in the river at its source. And so I think people stop before they get to the actual source and they're still looking at the effects of what a crap, whatever crap is being dumped into the river rather than the source itself. And so I, you know, people rage against fractional reserve banking like it's some sort of evil or people rage against uh, uh, fiat currency, i.e. paper currency that's not based on anything. I don't care about that. In a free society, you might have fiat currency all over the place. You just won't have a legally violent monopoly, and that makes all the difference in the world. And I'll agree with you on that. Um, and you're, I'll probably agree with you on, on uh, capitalism as well. But what happens is the rules get changed 
while the game is being played. And this might be because of the monopoly that you're talking about over the how the game is played. Tell me what you mean by the rules being changed. I want to make sure I understand that. Uh, what I mean by that is uh, let's take, for instance, you know, in capitalism, you know, you have the ability to uh, risk and reward. No one ever talks about risk and failure. They always talk about the risk <laughs> and reward of capitalism. Um, and I guess if, if you're, you know, like a, a JP Morgan and you're holding on to um, an enormous amount of toxic assets, uh, there is only risk and reward because you're not allowed, you know, I mean, you're allowed to take failure, but why would you when you don't have to? The games are changed, the rules of the game are changed uh, because you have the uh, power. Um, to uh, change the rules to where you don't have to book those um, uh, bad debts on the books at the moment. And this goes for a lot of things. I mean you can t- go to like uh, that uh, fraud closure gate with, uh, with the home loans. Um, they, they change the rules as the game are being played to benefit themselves. And that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about um, if the rules were the same for everybody. You know, Just like in baseball, the rules of, in baseball are the same for everybody that plays the game. They're the same for football, you know. Um, but what if somebody has the ability to co-opt the umpires? Then the entire hmm. the entire game changes. Okay, and that and that's kind of what I'm talking about is is that um, I, I agree with capitalism and I agree with you know fractures or banking. It's it's the ability to change the rules while the game is being played that I have a I have a hard time with. Well, and I would suggest that it might be wiser to amend your statement. If you say that the rules are being changed while the game is in process, that's just another way of saying there are no rules. Very true. I mean, because a well, rule there, is something well, that has to be somewhat there, universal, right? There are rules to certain people that play the game uh, for the majority of us. But then... Well, sure, yeah. So, But I mean, I think it's probably better just to say, I mean, just to say that there, there are no rules. And I think that's one of the things that's very true. Uh, people say, if you, if you have a society, which I believe is and accept as the only valid application of the just theory of nonviolence, which is the non-initiation of force or the non-aggression principle, um, that if you have a system uh, without a state, everybody says, well, then how will people's disputes be resolved? And the, the reality, though, is that what people are assuming in that context is that we have a system in place at the moment where people's disputes are resolved and nothing could be further from the truth. We do not have a system where people's disputes can be resolved. I only assume that people say we have a system where people's disputes can be resolved. I only accept that that's, they can say that if they've never actually tried to use the legal system that we currently have to resolve a, a dispute. I mean, what is it? The 9-11 responders now have been trying to get payments uh, for injuries sustained at ground zero for almost 10 years now, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that is not a system where people are getting any kind of justice. Uh, If you uh, are wronged in a contract, uh, I've seen cases go on for years and cost people uh, over $100,000, $150,000 just to try and get some sort of settlement with no particularly clear delineation of the rules that they're supposed to follow uh, and lawyers changing hands and, and having to restart all over again. We actually don't – I mean we're living in the worst kind of anarchy at the moment, which is a monopoly of chaos without the alternative for spontaneous order. And that is really, really wretched. I mean we have the very worst kind of system wherein people's voluntary and free associations are not allowed to solve problems, but the problems are being actively resisted from being solved. I mean just take public education, right? I mean the public education, particularly the U.S., I mean, it's beyond wretched. Uh, somebody said some years back that 
If a foreign government had inflicted the U.S. system of education on America, it would be justly considered an act of war. And I think that's very true. It is a war against kids. Mm-hmm. And so, but, but because there's so much control over the educational system through the government, because people are taxed to pay for this wretched, decrepit, disgusting, malevolent, indoctrinating, quote, education system, spontaneous and free and voluntary solutions are almost impossible to organize. So you have an inflicted chaos without there being room for voluntary solutions. And that really is the worst. So when people say, well, how will problems be solved in the absence of the government? It's like, what makes you think they're being solved now? In fact, the solution is prevented from coming into being through the power of the state. So so let me get – and I listen to your podcast quite a bit. I listen to a lot of your content, but I listen to a lot of other people as well. So I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing because it turns my, my brain a into a it's scrambled a egg and I have to make sense of it all. And uh, a lot of times you know, weeks later, I crisscross everything that I've learned uh, and it comes together in a coherent thought. But at the moment, um, it, doesn't always, it doesn't always feel that way. Uh, and one of my things – one of the problems I have it, it, when I listen to a lot of your material is um, – and maybe you've made this very clear before, and I just totally missed it. Mm. And that is uh, the they, you know, who they are, uh, or is this some sort of like organic organism um, that just, you know, it's, it's sort of like a, a natural um, instinct that we have that we want to centralize power in the hands of a few, uh, or am I, you know, let, take it from there. Sure, sure. Well, do you mean is it sort of the the conspiracy theory question? Like, is there a bunch of people in a room sort of plotting and planning all of this sort of stuff, or is it more of a spontaneous evil, so to speak? Um, is that is that what well, you mean, or is it something I, else? I don't want to. It'll be very easily easy to dismiss the dismiss the the conspiracy theory couple guys. But let's say this is sort of like a, a corporate thing. Um, hmm. You know, like the the corporate bodies uh, are sort of conspiring. Um, with each other, but for the better, the, for the betterment of themselves, and not for you know everybody sure. else. Okay, so versus what was the other uh, the other option? The other option was that it was instinct. Okay, this is instinct of these people. So yeah, on one side you have like it's it's sort of like inherent to corporations, and the other one is it's in, instinctual to humans. So what, you know where where do you think it is? Well, um, let me ask you a question or two, and hopefully this will sure. clarify at least my perspective. So let's say that, that you're sane. <laughs> let's go out on a limb. Let's say that you're sane, and, uh, and, and you, you, you kill a guy, right? So you're sane and you kill a guy. What do you do with the body? I would hide it. Yeah, of course, you would hide it. And, and if you say this to anybody who's sane and who kills a guy, uh, you know, I, they would hide the body. I mean, so, but, but that doesn't mean that there's a big cabal of people sitting there saying, listen, whoever kills a guy, hide the body, you know? <laughs> I mean, it's just instinct. Yeah, and, right. and what that means is that human beings have an instinct uh, for control and for power because the greatest resource that human beings can own is other human beings mm-hmm. because we are the self-organizing livestock, right? So if you own a cow... I mean, you have to build all these fences and the cow isn't very productive because you just get some meat and some milk or whatever. But human beings are spontaneously self-organizing and human beings are spontaneously self-policing. And what I mean by that is that uh, I now have done quite a number of of speeches at libertarian gatherings and anarchist gatherings. And I've recently started asking the same question. I sort of say to people in the audience, say, well, how many people in the audience here have been to jail for their beliefs and nobody puts their hands maybe one or two uh, and then i say well how many people have 
received significant social criticism from friends, family, or peers because of your opposition to state power. Every single person in the room puts his or her hands up. Because we are spontaneously self-organizing, the fences that we have is horizontal social attack. In other words, you and I are going to receive attacks and hostility and ostracism and rejection and contempt and scorn and all these things from our peers. And this mm-hmm. is one of the amazing things that happens in society is that once you start ruling people and you start indoctrinate, indoctrinating them, they very quickly become frightened of freedom because if they never look at freedom, they don't have to see that they're kind of enslaved, right? Right. And so cattle don't do that, right? Cattle don't gang up on the one person who finds a hole in the fence and drive them all back into the fence. They but, but human beings will do that. So there's a huge, huge value. Once you gain control and power over human beings, they self-police, they self-enclose, they self-enslave. And so it requires very little effort to maintain power over human beings. Uh, that's just a sad fact of social organization. It has long, long roots in the history of, of tribalism and the need for uh, horizontal cooperation to survive in the past. It's biologically selected and so on. You were breathing like you were about to say something. So oh, yeah, I was going to say that. Uh, yeah, so there, we allow ourselves to be centralized because it's part of our, you know, civil structure. We we allow ourselves to be, um, you know, uh, guided by others, and we work together as a team. Um, and somebody takes a leadership role, and then that maybe that's a that is a, a you know our you know vulnerability. We allow ourselves to be vulnerable to be um, policed by somebody else. Sure, and, and we do that. I mean, the, the two ways that the rulers do that, one is is through the direct threat of force. Uh, so if you don't pay your taxes, you get letters, and eventually people come and take your property, and, and if you resist them, then they might shoot you, right? So you've got the threat of force, and that works very well. We are designed to survive and reproduce, not to die in a useless uh, suicide run against the, the powers that be. So that's the – I mean, the first is direct force, which is actually not particularly powerful because the more that that's used, like in North Korea, the less efficient – that people are. But by far the better way to get the livestock to self-police is to get a portion of the livestock dependent upon the generosity of the farmer, right? So if you get people who are working for the government, you get people who are dependent upon the government for unjust benefits, right? So you sort of think of uh, teacher salaries and two months off in the summer and professional development days and all these kinds of goodies. Uh, this would not be exactly the same in the free market for sure. I mean, <laughs> it's completely insane, of course, that we have a working day that goes from nine to five and yet children are in school from nine to three. I mean, could you imagine <laughs> in a free market that you would end a child's education if we even assume that children need to be in school to be educated for the moment? Could you imagine that you would set up a school which would leave a two a two hour gap between parents kids getting out of school and parents uh, ending work? And nobody would, but of course this is what gets gets maintained by the power of the state. So once you get enough people dependent on the ruling class, then whenever anybody starts talking about freedom, they get attacked by everyone who's dependent on the ruling class. I mean that's the genius yeah. of the dependent classes, right? And that's the genius of getting people enslaved. I don't believe that there's any cabal or secret documents that are passed around any more than I believe that your average killer who's sane wants to hide the body only because he's been to the body hiding school of murder, right? I mean, it's just an instinct that we have to get something for nothing. It's an instinct that we have to maintain indoctrinated control over others. And it's an instinct uh, that has been finely developed and, and attuned, right? Like we, we know for sure that when lions go to hunt a gazelle, they're all acting in concert, right? They're all acting together. 
right? Some flank, some go ahead, some some uh, dart out to change the uh, the gazelle's course or whatever. Uh, and yet we don't think that they're sitting there calling out football plays to each other and that they've done it all up on a chalkboard beforehand, right? We, they just have an instinct for this kind of predation. And the same thing is true, I think, of human beings. Um, and and so what is the... What is the alternative to sort of this uh, this sort of structure here? Because because if we're all self policing in this sort of way, uh, and you know, and we feel as though we need a farmer, or give me your your outlook of a better um, way to look at this. Well, we know for sure that human beings don't want to live under a state. I mean that that is a basic. I mean that's an empirical logical fact. Uh, like for instance, it, you know, some some woman doesn't want to have sex with a guy if he has to have a knife to her throat. I mean, that's mm-hmm. you don't even have to look twice, right? I mean, okay, you could throw in some completely bizarre role playing, but let's just say, right? If you see a knife to the woman's throat, you know she doesn't want to have sex. If you see the the guy with a gun to some other guy's ribs, you know he's not giving his his wallet out of charity, right? So wherever there's a gun involved, wherever there's the initiation of force involved, you know for absolute certain, without any shadow of a doubt that that is exactly what people don't want. So the government is a big, dark, ugly blob of an evil shadow which delineates exactly what people don't want to happen in society, exactly what people would resist if they could, exactly what people hate. Human beings do not want enforced welfare. Human beings do not want socialized medicine because if they did, you wouldn't need to force them to do it. And so the government is a huge delineation of exactly the opposite of what people want in society. So that's that's the good news, that we know exactly what people don't want, and that's exactly what the government is doing, because they have to enforce it. And, and so that is, is, is good news, because it means that we know exactly what people don't want. Now, what, what the mistake people make then is they say, well, the government is providing health care to the poor, and therefore, if we get rid of government then there will be no health care for the poor. And, and that is, it, it's an easy trap to fall into, and it's one of the most fundamental pieces of propaganda mm-hmm. that exists, right? So it's sort of like uh, saying, uh, there's a big rock in the middle of the river, and if we take that rock out, the water is going to run around that vacuum as if <laughs> there was still a rock there. But it's not true. The moment you lift the rock out, right. the water goes thundering in, and the whole course changes. The moment you take violence out of the equation, then immense possibilities for creativity and and voluntary problem solving emerge that were completely blocked off by violence. And of course, the reality is, just as I said, you know, anybody who was not talking about the the end of the existing economic and political system as it stands is just talking out of their armpit. Equally, anybody who says right now that the government is necessary to help the poor is an intellectual joke and and really a, a brain mutant of the highest order because what is going to happen to the poor when the government can't pay welfare? And that is mathematically going to happen. There is no way around it. There is no way to evolve it, uh, to avoid it. The, the national debt is upwards of 80 to 90%, depending on how you calculate it, it's over 100%. It has no chance of being paid off. There's going to be massive defaults which is going to cause massive problems. What is going to happen to people on old age pensions when the government can't pay for Medicare or Medicaid or Social Security? So the idea that the government is somehow helping the poor, anybody who still proposes that is a mere propaganda machine who has no more intellectual 
uh, value than a broken iPod. Um, so I got a question for you then. It's uh, This is a, probably an age-old question you get from quite a few people um, based along those same sort of lines is that without a government, you know, who puts out the fires? Sure. Uh, who well. the people? And then more importantly, is here's, here's another one, and I didn't see it happen, uh, you know, in the absence of government is, you know, I like to go to bars and I don't like people smoking next to me, you know? So now they've a banned smoking in, um, bars in, in Missouri, Illinois, New York, places that I've lived. Uh, and I happen to agree with that one. I, I mean, but there isn't an alternative choice where I can go to a, like a no smoking bar or maybe that's, you, you let me know what you think on that. Well, um, you obviously have the right to breathe air that is not smoky. I mean, that's perfectly fine. You don't have the right to shoot people <laughs> for smoking in a place where they uh, voluntarily have agreed that they're allowed to smoke, mm -hmm. right? So if you think that bars should be smoke-free, and I can certainly understand that. I don't like the smell of smoke at all. Uh, then uh, you should uh, patronize bars where there is uh, a smoke-free policy, and that's the way that you should work. I don't think that you can initiate the use of force against people engaged in a voluntary transaction such as uh, I'm going to uh, open my bar to smokers. Uh, smokers, uh, they, they drink more, uh, they tip more, they stay longer. Uh, that's just a basic reality of bar ownership. And uh, maybe we wish it were otherwise, and I can certainly understand that. Mm -hmm. But you can't, uh, I think you can't legitimately use force. Like, there's always something that we want that we're tempted, right? I mean, force works in, in very powerful ways, right? So people don't smoke in bars where it's illegal for the most part. And so there's always something, you know, the devil has, uh, has fishnet stockings on, right? I mean, there's always something that can be dangled in front of you right. that's like, well, it's such a little thing and, yeah. and uh, you know, it would really give me something that I want. And right. it's always something like, like, shouldn't we have, shouldn't the government at least make sure that children's toys aren't toxic, right? Something like that. And you say, yeah, you know, the government should really make sure that children, yeah, you can't argue against that. So let's, let's have that, the government do that. Well, shouldn't the government at least make sure that your water doesn't have cholera in it? It's like, well, I don't, I don't really like cholera. So, <laughs> you know, that, let's, let's make sure the government does that and so on. Right. Yeah. And all of that stuff is really seductive. And of course, it's such a slippery slope. And if the government were involved, well, sorry, if the government were even remotely interested in uh, the health of children, then it would completely privatize education as soon as humanly possible uh, and start looking at alternatives to this current system of locking children up in quasi-prisons for 12 years, being droned at by boring people spitting at them, little spittle drops of inconsequential information. That would be what, and of course, if the government was interested in keeping toxicity out of children, they wouldn't be drugged for imaginary illnesses like ADHD and, and uh, ODD and all of these other kinds of metaphorical like new original sin quote ailments uh, but this is not the case at all uh, the government does not care uh, about children the government cares about money and power and uh, brute force and uh, if you feel sentimental about kids then it will play upon that sentimentality to expand its power but the empirical evidence is very very clear that uh, the government does not care about the health uh, and uh, intellectual acuity and growth of kids at all. So, yeah, it's just really important. Someone's going to dangle something in front of you, like, uh, you yeah. know, like those anglerfish, they have that light and they dangle it in the deep water and it's like, ooh, what a pretty light. That, right? And so you got to be careful about that. That there's, And there's some, there's, the same stuff is there for me too, stuff that I really want. And it's like one little push of that 
lever of force and I can get it. And it's like, no, 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 no. There's right. a principle we have to respect, right? Yeah, I, actually, to recap, because so I, this lesson makes it all the way very clear to me. This, you know, the free domain, free domain uh, lesson of today is that, you know, because it, you know, it's 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 a disturbance to me that when I go into bars and somebody's smoking, but it's not the end of my life, you know. Um, but on the other hand, when you allow that sort of system into your life, there's, uh, you know, the taxation and um, the, you know, the, the fact that you're giving up a lot of your own liberties in the process by allowing, you know, by allowing you, you, you to allow somebody else to police somebody else to make sure that they, they, you know, I mean, I, I, I'm not even against like the fact that, you know, like a, an Eagle's Lodge where, where everybody smokes there anyway, um, can go and do that. I just, you know, I'm, I just wanted government sanctioned places where you just couldn't smoke. So where people that don't smoke go. Um, but I think, and I, and I saw this happen in a book I was reading the big necessity. And I forget it's by Rose, somebody what happened with sanitation in India is that in the absence of like government, the people um, come together to make these sort of decisions. But when you involve government, it's everybody looks to the government as to the person that solves all the problems. It's like, Okay, so right. and it's very different. So if we had lived in a society where we didn't have a government, then we, we might all come together and say, you know what? Because there's nobody else around to make these decisions, um, we need to come together and do this voluntarily. Uh, whereas when with a government system, you everybody looks immediately to the government. In fact, I see this happen a lot. With a lot of people say, you know, you should run for office because that's how you'll you'll get change you'll get the system. Change right. the system. And I right. say, no. I don't <laughs> no, and or even anybody that I've talked to has heard the same sort of argument. You should run. You're so politically or um, active. You should go and run for office because that's how you make a difference. And we all right. say that's that's not how you make a difference. It's a that's a top down. Uh, the the differences that I want to make are bottom up. So. Well, I just say to people like that, it's like, well, you're so interested in, like you, I say, are you against crime? And they say, yes. I say, well, then you should join the mafia and make it stop <laughs> doing criminal things. Right? Yeah, and right. they say, well, like, if I join the mafia, I'm not going to get him to stop doing criminal things. It's like, well, yeah. So if I get voted in, I'm not going to stop the government from doing criminal things. That's the whole point. Very true. Yeah. And sorry, just uh, just to hammer this, this uh, smoking thing for just a second or two more, because sure. I think it's a very interesting example. Yeah. There, there are two things in society that uh, that we don't like. One of them is sort of minor annoyances, mm -hmm. and the other is stuff which is, you know, kind of actually bad for us, right? And the minor annoyances, look, we just have to suck it up and and live with, right? So if I'm uh, sitting, I, I remember, I don't know, a couple of years ago, I was sitting on a beach trying to relax, and someone came down, and they did have headphones on, but it was really loud. And you know, sometimes uh, when you can just hear a little bit of music, it starts to drive you slowly insane. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. when you can just hear that, boom, 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 you can't actually hear any lyrics or whatever. It just starts to get annoying. Well, obviously, that's something that I can move or I can ask him to turn it down. But that's just something I have to deal with. It's not damaging my health or anything like that. Now, let's say that secondhand smoke is bad for your health and does cause health problems, then uh, in a free society, uh, people who, uh, who who smoke in enclosed areas with other people who don't want the smoke to be there might themselves be liable for the medical costs of people who've gotten sick as a result. I'm just saying it's possible, right? I mean, this is, I don't know, I'm, I'm no expert on this, but so there are things where there's an objective damage that is occurring to your health that has some causality that can be traced in some manner. And uh, I think stewardesses on planes won court cases if they developed lung cancer because people were allowed to smoke on planes because that was pretty 
um, enclosed and pretty certain. Mm-hmm. And so those those kinds of mechanisms would still occur in a free society that if people were doing stuff that was detrimental to your health, they would still be liable. And if those liabilities exceeded the profits of having smokers in your bar, then people would just say, look, you can't smoke in here because I don't want the liability of the guy next to you's healthcare costs or whatever. So these are just some possibilities of, of ways that, that things can, can, can change and be dealt with. And certainly in a free society, behaviors that people have that are detrimental or negative to other people's health and well-being will be dealt with because there's a measurable economic cause and effect and cost in that that would have to be borne by someone and it will be the perpetrator of whatever behaviors are causing people this distress. Hmm, that's good because in that, in that example, you you covered both the, the minor annoyances and then you also covered uh, uh, the fact that it's detrimental to other people because that was my next question was, you know, the, the cholera in the water. You know, we all have a concern over the water that we drink uh, or even the toxins that our people are pumping into the ground. And, with a, you know, we just assume because we've lived in this sort of narrative our whole life is that the solution to the problem is uh, is some sort of government response. So, uh that's uh, quite fascinating. Um, let's switch gears just for a second here because I, I, you brought up Libertopia or some of the speeches that you've given because I've listened to a few of your podcasts that you've done uh, where you've been uh, the keynote speaker at different places and you've been doing this for quite a while. So are, because of all the friction in the economy uh, and what's going on with our government at the moment, is there a larger following? Are people more amped up than ever? What's your feeling uh, of being on the road? Well, I think that there has actually been a huge deflation in uh, in the movement over the past few years. Uh, obviously, mm-hmm. the libertarian movement invested a huge amount of energy, emotional, psychological, monetary, time. It Ron invested Paul. a huge amount yeah, in Ron Paul. And that was – and people had significant delusions about that. Like people were saying, well, this online Paul gave him X and therefore he just might happen that he becomes president and blah, 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 right? Mm-hmm. And I mean when the results came in, I mean it was – I mean I mean it was staggeringly bad, right? And there was this sort of dual narrative about it, right? So when when people were asking for money for Ron Paul, I don't think it was particularly – virtuous but they were asking for money for Ron Paul and and they would say well it's because he could become president right and he can set you free or something like that which was not going to happen and then so when people said well this is not going to happen then they say well no it's really just for educating people and we know he's not going to win but it's just for educating people and so on though there was in fact no measurement of that right if you're going to spend tens of millions of dollars on an educational program you should really measure whether it's been successful or not right because libertarians are very much against government programs that don't measure their success and i don't think that that was a very uh, good like they acted kind of like a government program because politics is just another government program mm-hmm. so i think that since the end of the fantasy about Ron Paul and with the knowledge that as someone of his caliber and experience and credibility is not going to be along for another generation and we sure as hell don't have another generation to spend on this system because it's not going to last that long I think there has been a kind of uh, you know oh shit let's hunker down and uh, let's uh, you know get some guns and some uh, dried food and, and so on I think there has been a retreat these are just my opinions. I don't have any proof of this, right? So take it for you know what it's worth. But I think there has been a retreat uh, uh, into the bunker, so to speak, for the libertarian movement. There has been a withdrawal from the public sphere. I think also seeing the corruption that's occurring with the Tea Partiers, 
who've gone in and now requested a billion dollars or more of, of additional spending. I, I think people are kind of getting that politics isn't going to work. And people don't know what else to do. You know, it's like if, if it's not politics that's going to help free us or get this, this Leviathan off our necks, what is it going to be? So I think that there's been a lot of problems in the libertarian movement, a lot of withdrawal from engaging in this. Uh, and uh, I think that's been to the betterment of what it is that I'm doing because uh, I've always proposed something quite different from that. But uh, I, I don't think that people are more fired up. I think that there's a, uh, a pretty heavy veil of uh, hopelessness and uh, resignation in the libertarian movement given what's happened over the past few years. Hmm, that's a, that's a, a kind of a shock to me. I would have thought that a lot of the events surrounding today would have galvanized a lot of people. Um, but once you've been let down, I mean, it's it's hard to uh, recoup. And well, sorry, but but galvanize them to do what? That's the question, right? That's very very, very true. I don't I don't know. I mean, what? Yeah, I mean, what they, do they we don't do? think we thought we they could. They can't do. imagine. Uh, they can't imagine that they're going to get someone elected who's going to make a big difference before the the shit hits the fan economically. So I mean, I'm not trying to sort of harangue you. I'm just like curious if you mean sort of energized to to do what? I mean, that's that's always the question, right? Yeah, uh, I that's the question I ask myself all the time. Is like, how can um, I use what small little little time that I have uh, remaining over my long work day and spending time with my kids uh, to have some sort of impact. And it's just there isn't sort of like this clear-cut choice, and I can understand how people fell into maybe the Ron Paul candidacy as being the right thing to do, the way to spend your time, the way to spend your money. Um, and I don't know right now uh, what to do. And, and in my own sort of little world, in my own little podcast here, is I've tried to raise money to do like uh, viral videos. Um, mm -hmm. so I could make, make sort of like the perfect video that would just turn on so many people. Um, but I've, I'm just sort of to the point where this will just, um, it's sort of like a porn for the people that already listen to my show. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. I'd like to see some of these viral porn. <laughs> well, it's right, financial, no, I hear what you're saying. It's financial, you feel like economic, uh, you know, kind of thing, right? Right. Yeah. So right. you know, it's, you're right. What do you what do you get behind? You know, um, what? And another thing is, if you get behind somebody and they become marginalized, then you be you know you've lost all faith in the, in what actually what you actually believed in. You know that sort of thing. Um, so there's a lot of questions at this point. Um, but maybe just maybe you know we're where uh, there, there's something rising up from, uh, and there's some, and people are sort of starting to sort of like hold hands out and start to grab each other's hand, and something might might just come up. But uh, future crystal ball. Um, well, look, there's there's we have we have zero opportunity to turn this thing around before it hits the wall. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's there's you know there's there's no chance uh, to to do that, and I think I think people are beginning to to really get that that the acceleration of the collapse of the existing system, and we're not just talking America. I mean, Europe is going through the same thing. Canada is going through similar things. I mean, the amount of debt, the predation, the exploitation, the special interest groups, the end of even the pretense of democracy, uh, the, the fact that we have accumulated all of this massive debt and staggering multi-trillion dollar obligations when – the big bills are still to come, right? Because the big bills are the baby boomers retiring and where, at the, you know, originally you had like, uh, you know, I think it was like one person retired for every 10 people working. It's going to go down to like uh, one person retired for every two people working. I mean, that's just completely unsustainable. And so uh, we are in this massive hole right before the big crater of retirement from the baby boomers is going to hit. So 
and it's not accidental, right? That the fact that there was no money in the uh, in the Social Security Fund would have been evident to everyone if the government hadn't been able to blame the bankers. So uh, I'm not sure that's entirely accidental. Um, again, I don't think it's plotted. It's just natural exploitation. And so there's no chance that things can be turned around politically before uh, the government runs out of money. Now, what the government is going to do uh, is, is clear uh, from history, and it's clear just from the self-interest of the ruling classes, is the government is going to turn on the dependent classes. And this is already starting to occur. So there are a number of, I made this prediction quite some time back, and the evidence is starting to come in quite clearly that there are a number of governments in the US, state governments, who are looking at uh, shredding the collective bargaining agreements that they have with their public sector unions because they simply don't have the money. Mm -hmm. uh, and California has this huge unfunded liability because starting in the 90s when they didn't have any money, they stopped giving them raises. And what they gave them instead was these staggeringly generous pension benefits because that was a way of getting compliance and reducing conflict in the moment uh, without adding to the, the deficit at the time. It's a standard, you know, cowardly. I mean, it's hard to call it cowardly. It's inevitable. It's like it's like saying that running away from a grizzly bear is cowardly. but it's not. It's just uh, what you do. And uh, so what's going to happen is the current crop of politicians, no matter what their ideologies are, have inherited this dependent classes, right? The people on Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, welfare. Uh, and it's not just the poor, of course. Uh, the rich, uh, the large corporations, the military-industrial complex corporations like Boeing and Lockheed and all that, they've also, uh, the current crop of politicians has inherited all of these parasites uh, in the sort of quasi-private sector. And they're very aware, very, I mean, politicians aren't stupid. They know that the higher taxes, the higher the regulations, the less productive the productive classes are. They also know that there can't be any possibility of recovery at the moment while we have so many dependents and so few productive and energetic people. They also know that the younger generation is not buying into the American dream, does not exhibit the same amount of entrepreneurial zeal that their parents did. And so they know that they have to, and I use this word advisedly, I don't mean this physically, right? But they know that they have to cull the dependents. They know that they're going to have to find a way to stop paying out so much money and to loosen the shackles on the productive classes, not with the intention of setting anyone free, <laughs> right, but merely with the intention of restoring their finances to some. So my advice is, you know, just try and stay away from the dependent uh, uh, trough uh, as much as you can because that is, uh, that is going to go bye-bye with a rapidity that will be quite surprising to people. I'm in totally in agreement with you there. Um, you've got this sort of like uh, this – Separation between or this wealth and income gap has just become so great between mm -hmm. who the wealthiest people are and um, who you know, who the impoverished are. I think something. I think the top ten percent have eighty five percent of the wealth. You know, even the Pareto. Yeah, the bottom half have like zero point three percent of the wealth. Yeah. And what nobody's talking about, Steve, is is the fact that this is after what almost a generation and a half of an attempt to equalize society. Right, because the welfare state and, and and public education and Medicare and Medicaid and and taxes on the rich and, and taxes on corporations were all designed to equalize society. That was the goal of the Great Society: to take away some of the highs, to bring up some of the lows, and to give people a middle of the road income. And of course, as always is the case with violence as a solution, the exact opposite has occurred. 
And, and of course, nobody's talking about that. They're saying like, well, it's some mysterious function of capitalism, man, that we've got all of these highs and lows and the middle class has been gutted. But the whole point of the welfare states, the whole point of government income redistribution was to turn everybody into the middle class. I mean, that yeah. was the whole point, right? To, to give free education to the young, to give income support to the young, to give training, pro sorry, to the, to the poor, to give training program support to the poor was entirely designed to get everybody into the middle class. That's the whole point of socialist redistribution. And what's happened after a generation and a half of that is you have almost no middle class and growing rich and growing poor. And nobody's talking about that, that, that you've had trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars You've had people thrown in jail. You've had massive uh, amounts of, of, of violently executed effort designed to take away the highs and take down the highs and bring up the lows in the economy. And you've ended up with an extremity of highs and lows. Violence always produces the opposite. But everyone's blanking out on that and pretending like that didn't occur, like there wasn't a big program to do that. And now it's just mysteriously the opposite has happened. And let's blame freedom, right? I mean, it's crazy, but sort of inevitable. You know, you weren't the first person to come up with a lot of these philosophies. Uh, where do you get a lot of your information from? Um, and I'm, what I'm thinking is, you know, Karl Marx, a lot of people say was like a, a communist. And, and correct me if I'm wrong in any of this because I've only read like a few internet blogs about this. But um, he, he wasn't um, so much a communist as he was a critic of capitalism and that it would end in this type of uh, state that we have now. Um, so who, where do you get your information from and who's, you know, who you're reading, what, that, that sort of thing? Well, I, uh, you know, I'm, I'll pump a few sites that I like. I think Mises.org is, uh, is very good. Um, I think that, um, the, um, independent Institute is, uh, is very good. I still dip into lourockwell.com, which I think is uh, some very good stuff, uh, a little more on the religious side to my taste, but you know, it's good for your, yeah, a little bit of uh, ANCAP blow for the nostrils. And so <laughs> I would get some of that sort of stuff. Um, uh, I like going to conferences. I'm fortunate enough uh, to be invited to attend, so I get to see some other great speeches. Uh, I, of course, um, get a lot of information sent to me by uh, interested and alert listeners. Mm -hmm. And this is where I get a lot of the interviews that I do from and so on. So, uh, of course, I think my site is a, <laughs> it's a very good. Yeah. I have now, I think, 150 True News episodes, which is, you know, the philosophy of uh, the current news. So I hope people will go and check those out. They're on uh, youtube.com forward slash free domain radio is, uh, is the place that you can sign up for those. And so I think that the information is great. I just wanted to you know, just correct to, to be annoying and pedantic as usual. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, first of all, Marx and Engels, I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> I mean, it's tragic and funny at the same time that, that two young men who'd never held a job in their life and who came from pretty privileged backgrounds, but never worked a day in their life, uh, sit down and talk about exactly what the working class is all about. I mean, that is comedy. You couldn't, I mean, that would be a Monty Python sketch uh, if it wasn't, if it didn't have such destructive, such a destructive outcome. Uh, first of all, they said that the free market was going to self-destruct. And that is not a prediction that applies to today. Uh, and it is also very instructive that the majority of the platforms of the Communist Manifesto have been adopted by Western nations, right? So we led this huge fight against fascism and socialism and national socialism and communism, the Cold War, right? We can't let the Russians win. Well, they didn't win, but the communists certainly did mm -hmm. because the majority of what goes on in the U.S. is a form of uh, state capitalism. Um, for instance, uh, China, you know, this communist dictatorship, China 
owns far less or manages far less of the British economy, sorry, of the, the Chinese, Chinese economy, economy than England does, if the British, the English government does, if the British economy. It's like less than half, right? So, I mean, so in, in a very fundamental way, England and America and Canada are much more communist than China. And this is not what Engels and Marx predicted. They predicted that the unfettered free market would self-destruct. Uh, and that has not been the case at all. What has happened is, as communism has been implemented piece by piece, uh, they called it creeping socialism, and this is exactly what it is, although it is in fact communism. Socialism is considered to be the, uh, you know, the cute teddy bear cousin of, so of communism, but it's not. Uh, it's just a, a smaller dose of a larger poison. And so it is the communization or socialization or basically violent <laughs> enforced monopolies uh, of state control of the economy that is causing the destruction of the economies because violence destroys things. I mean, this is not hard to understand in war, uh, and it's not that hard to understand in economics either. Uh, violence uh, and destruction does not breed wealth. You know, I've <laughs> always sort of thought, I'm not recommending this to people, but I've always sort of thought it'd be kind of funny. You get some economics professor who says that um, uh, war is good for the economy because, you know, things have to be replaced. You know, just go and key that guy's car. You know, and, and if he catches you and says, well, what the hell are you doing? He says, you just say, hey, I'm giving you a raise. <laughs> I'm creating, I'm stimulating the economy. Yeah, listen, this, you know, if, if blowing things up is good for the economy, sure, a little scratch alongside your car is very good for the economy. I'm just, you know, putting your theories into practice. It's good for the paint shop. It's good for the painters. Yeah, it's good absolutely. for the guys who made all the little components that make up the, um, the, the paint machine. Think exactly. of all that stimulus. Right, and then that they have then, you know, if we keep keying your car every week, they'll end up with the money to send their kids to college and you'll get a raise because you're a college professor. So, you know, good. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm listening and I'm implementing. <laughs> Very good. Well, I think we've run out of time here, but uh, I want to give you one, one last plug here. Because, and what I want to do is um, – is uh, talk about the donation model of your website because I think it's so important. You know, like when people we talked about it a little bit earlier. You know, where do you where do you spend your capital? Where do you spend your time and your money um, on on what you think is important? And um, you know, I've made it uh, very clear to my audience that the way that we're going to keep you know podcasts like yours, television. Uh, video series like yours, like every, like all the, all the other guests that I have on this show, um, the only way to keep them moving forward is to, to allow them the time uh, to concentrate their efforts on those sort of things. So just talk about that for a little bit. Well, sure. I mean, it's um, uh, I used to. Uh, uh, I mean, this isn't a, a uh, uh, this isn't a hideout place for me. Like, I mean, I used to be a software entrepreneur. I was an executive. I made some. A pretty good coin in the entrepreneurial market. I sold a company uh, and uh, uh, and then invested in a new company and all that. So, well, you uh, might be unique, but a lot of the folks that we'd have on this show are not. But um, well, and but what I'm I'm not sort of trying to so you know I'm some sort of business genius, which I'm mm -hmm. certainly not. But what I'm sort of trying to say is that this isn't because I couldn't make it in the real world. <laughs> you okay, know, that yeah. became a podcaster. I sort of wanted to, to point that out. And I took a huge, huge pay cut uh, to to do this. And again, that doesn't make me heroic because. Or, or any better than anyone else, because I, I genuinely love doing this. So it's not a sacrifice on my part, but it does mean that I am like Blanche Dubois, <laughs> dependent upon the kindness of strangers. Uh, my sort of basic pitch is that 
for any organization or any ideology or philosophy or belief system to gain traction and spread in the world, people have to invest in it. Everybody understands that. I mean, Mormons take 10% of your income. Can you imagine if we said to our listeners, I'm going to have to take 10% of your income? I mean, people would go insane. You know, to join a synagogue, you have to pay them thousands of dollars a year. To go to church, you have to pay them thousands or hundreds of dollars a year. Uh, for anything to, to work in this world, resources need to be invested, right? Ron Paul got like $20, $30 million. Uh, the 700 Club was so named because 700 people signed up in 1962 for $10 a month, which would be like $100 a month now, which is like $70,000 a year, right? Uh, sorry, a month. I mean, imagine what you could do with $70,000 a month in today's money. I mean, that would be uh, uh, amazing. And so it is to some degree, and I say this from my business experience, it is just to some degree a numbers game. And obviously the government has control of the kids uh, for 12 years, you know, six, seven, eight hours a day if you include homework. Uh, we don't have that, right? So uh, uh, churches have control of the kids through Sunday school and through various other forms of indoctrination. We don't have that. Um, uh, other kinds of movements get massive amounts of money from the government. We don't have that. We can't, I think, in all good conscience, look for <laughs> grants from the government. So it really does come down to private donation. My basic approach, Steve, was just this. It's like, I don't want to be the richest guy in the graveyard. I don't even want to be a rich guy in the graveyard. If I've spent my last dime on my deathbed, I've considered that a life well spent. Because you know, my daughter isn't going to need any of my money because she's going to be a competent and efficient individual herself. And so I sort of invite people to to recognize that um, it does require resources. Uh, it, there is no such thing as a free lunch. You know, I mean, it's a funny thing is that socialists believe there is such a free lunch, but we'll put millions of dollars into their organizations. Uh, free market people understand that there is no such thing as a free lunch, but find it hard to dig deep and to support whatever it is that they, they believe is, is providing the best message, whether it's my show or, or some other show or some other website mm -hmm. or some other institution. And so, yeah, there is no such thing as a free lunch. Um, we, you and I can put as much effort as we want into, but we still uh, need to eat. We need to buy equipment. Uh, we need to travel to, to do lectures or, or presentations or whatever. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's just a numbers game. And uh, if we end up losing significantly in the long run, um, for the sake of people saying, well, $10 a month, uh, of a subscription was too much for me, well, then clearly philosophy um, wasn't that important to people and craziness and irrationality and coercion was to others. And that's just a numbers game. So uh, I, I really do invite people to support whatever show or whatever resource they find to be the most valuable. It doesn't have to be money. You can send uh, videos around. You can send podcasts around. You can engage people. Uh, you can start your own stuff. It doesn't have to be giving people money. But if you don't have the time, energy, expertise, or desire for any of that stuff, yeah, we need uh, we need the money. There's just no two ways about it. And um, uh, it's a choice that everybody has to make for themselves. But I really think that people looking back, if things do go to hell in a handbasket, won't look back and say, well, at least I had that 10 bucks a month or 20 bucks a month in my pocket, right. uh, which is now worthless. So yeah, that's just my annoying pitch to people. And I hope it makes some sense. Yeah, well, we look at her, you know, my father, who's probably, you know, uh, the, of the Woodstock era, you know, like, w did you go to Woodstock? And if you didn't go to Woodstock, then, you know, what were you doing? Um, and then our kids, <laughs> our kids can look back on us and say, well, you know, were you, were, what were you doing in, in 2011 when all this was going down? Well, you know, it was doing nothing. Uh, or you can be a part, a part of uh, yeah, yeah, something say, that's well, coming up. Yeah, if you say, well, I knew, I knew all about it. Mm -hmm. I knew exactly what the problem was. I knew exactly what the solution was, and I didn't do anything. That's a that's a tough question. 
to have posed to you, right? Like you, you don't want to be the guy who's the surgeon who's, you know, drives past a pileup with people who really desperately need your services and say, well, I'm late for a, a lunch, so I'm just going to keep driving and hope that nobody knows that I'm a surgeon. Uh, you know, if, if you've done this amount of study and you've learned how to stitch people up, then when you come across somebody lying bleeding in the road, I think you damn well have to kneel down and stitch them up. And I think that if people have spent a huge amount of time and energy and effort, or even a medium amount, learning about freedom and voluntarism and nonviolent solutions to social problems, yes, the world desperately needs you, even though it sometimes kicks you in the face for trying to help it, the world desperately needs you. And you really do have an obligation based upon your accumulated knowledge to help people as much as you can. Well, I find uh, there's no better way to end a podcast than that. <laughs> <laughs> right, bleeding and all right, stitching people up. I'm sure we've motivated everyone to put their heads slowly down on their desk. <laughs> well, yes, and thanks, Steve. It was great to chat again, and I appreciate uh, the conversation, and uh, best of luck with your show. Uh, please you. make sure you give out your website address as well so that my listeners can drop past and see what you're doing. Uh, well, I got a, um, a volunteer from, from my audience uh, coming forward and helping me out with my website, and we'll, we should have it up uh, sometime this week. It's uh, going to be www.twobeerswithsteve, all spelled out, T-W-O-beerswithsteve.com, um, and then you can always contact me. My, my new email address will be steve at twobeerswithsteve.com. Uh, so this is all new to me, but um, yeah, uh, I also have another one that but you have to do it through a Google search because it's got all, you know it's got dot dot Libsyn in it and stuff like that. But um, you can also find me on iTunes. Um, and uh, I like to say that uh, it's always a pleasure to have you on, Stefan. Always a pleasure. Thanks, man. And I'll talk to you soon. Talk to you soon. Bye.